Hello, I'm Boyan Fierst and you are listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. Early in October, we at the Harris Center at Memorial University of Newfoundland organized this year's Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation Conference and North Atlantic Forum. As always, this was an opportunity to meet with colleagues and rural researchers and policymakers from across Canada, but it was also a great opportunity to record some important rural conversations. Over the next few episodes, I will play some excerpts from those conversations for you. The first one is the opening panel for the conference moderated by Craig Pollitt. Craig was on this podcast before, talking about community university collaborations. He is the executive director of the municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, and he moderated a rather distinguished panel of experts on rural-urban relations. Here is Craig Pollitt introducing the globalization, climate change, and just-in-time deliveries. What do rural and urban need, want, and expect from one another? If you know our panel, as most of you do, you know that they're going to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Uh, and we are most likely all the better for it, to be quite honest. So our first panelist, uh, Dr. Bill Reimer, Professor Emeritus from Concordia University. For over 30 years, Dr. Reimer has conducted research on issues, issues relating to rural Canada with a particular focus on social inclusion and exclusion. His publications deal with the impact of technology on rural communities women's farm and household labor, the economy and the household, Aboriginal communities, the informal economy, social support networks, social capital, social cohesion, and community capacity building. And for 11 years, he was the director of the New Rural Economy Project, uh, a multinational, multidisciplinary research project involving 11 universities, 13 collaborators, and 32 rural communities, all involved in a massive connected research project. If you work in rural development, Bill Reimer is your conscience. So Bill, I think he's hiding behind that pillar. Would you mind coming up, sir, and have a seat? Our second panelist is Zita Cobb, CEO of the Shorefast Foundation in Fogo Island, Newfoundland, Labrador. Growing up on Fogo Island, Zita, yep, you can sit. Or stand. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Come on over. Zita developed a deep belief in the inherent value of place and a profound respect for the human ways of knowing that emerged from respectful relationships with nature, culture, and community. After completing university in Ottawa, Zita took on increasingly senior financial roles in the high-tech industry. She is most recognized for her work with JDS Fitel and subsequently JDS Uniphase where she contributed to building the company into one of the most successful high-tech innovators in, the in history. Zita returned home to Fogo Island in the early 2000s, and along with her brothers Anthony and Alan, founded the Shorefast Foundation. In 2016, Zita was awarded the Order of Canada in acknowledging an acknowledgement of the work of the Shorefast Foundation in collaboration with the community of Fogo Island to help secure a more resilient future for the sing this singular rural place. She now dedicates her full time and energies to the active direction and management of Shorefast and their projects on Fogo Island. Welcome, Zita. And thirdly, 
we have Brian Dabson, Research Fellow, School of Government, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, Brian is a research fellow at the School of Government there. His interests focus on regional and rural development and is currently leading a national project in the United States on rural-urban connections. His previous appointments include Director, Institute of Public Policy at the University of Missouri, President of the Rural Policy Research Institute, and President of the Corporation for Enterprise Development, which is now called Prosperity Now. Prior to moving to the United States, he was director of the Center for Employment Initiatives, a UK-based research and technical assistance nonprofit that worked across Europe on community and economic development programs. And before that, served on a number of local government planning and economic development positions in Liverpool and Glasgow. He also held the position of president of the Social Innovations Forum at the OECD. And if I didn't have imposter syndrome before, I do now. <laughs> Brian, would you like to join us, please? So there's a lot. There's a lot up here. There's a lot to get out. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of opinions. Uh, we had a great chat earlier today about how all that will work. I'm sure this will work nothing like that conversation, uh, but it's going to be fascinating. So I think uh, our running order is Dr. Reimer, Ms. Cobb, and Dr. Dabson. So five to 10-ish minutes each. Uh, and like I said, however you're comfortable delivering it. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very pleased to, to be here, and especially your honor to have you in attendance. It's wonderful when we can sort of make the connections with our, our policy people and our, our, uh, the people who are making decisions that affect rural areas. So it's, it's wonderful to, to have that. Um, I have I brought five points that I am going to quickly go through um, to open up our conversation about, and I actually am looking at rural-urban relationships in, in my five points. And I want to keep them short. They're kind of trailers uh, for what might be, I hope, uh, further conversations, more elaborations, and so on. But I particularly want to focus on the implications um, for rural and urban interactions. So that was an, uh, uh, an issue that I'm focusing on, uh, looking at community su sustainability issues and looking at community development issues. So first, this is, this is a, you need a spoiler alert on this one, uh, because my first point is we do know what works. We've done research for many years, uh, and we and uh, the, the, rural, um, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, but many others across the world have convinced us about, we know what, what works with respect to community development. Appropriate devolution of governance and resources that go with that. Inter-community interaction, communities working together, and leadership capacity building are the kind of keywords that um, identify for us what works when we're looking at community development. And we can point to the Community Futures Program in Canada. We can look at the enterprise communities in the USA, the MRCs in Quebec, the leader program in Europe as evidence and support for this kind of a claim. So the question then becomes, how might rural-urban relationships contribute 
to what we know already works, first point. Second point, the interdependence of rural and urban people and places is an appropriate framework for looking at the relationships between rural and urban, especially in Canada. Our economy, our social history, our governance, the policies all support such interdependence between rural and urban places in spite of the occasional rhetoric of conflict and separate interests. Mind you, the interdependence is often indirect and therefore invisible. Um, seldom do people make the connection between our, our massive commodity trade and their ability to purchase the latest fashions and tablets and iPods. But that's a connection that is very fundamental. Third point, <coughs> interdependence between rural and urban is much broader than trade and exchange. It involves particularly our institutions, for example, policies on health, education, economic status, culture, that are made often in urban areas affect significantly rural areas. And so that the way in which we structure those institutions, the way in which we organize those institutions has a, an uh, interrelational impact between rural and urban. We share an environment. Therefore, we are necessarily interdependent. We share identities and issues regarding identities. And once again, those drive this basic interdependence between rural and urban. Fourth point, rural has largely lost traction in policy and practice, except in Newfoundland, I understand. We can't expect that urban people and places will consider rural issues in the face of the challenges that urban places uh, experience. And the population, the uh, urbanization in Canada simply report, uh, increases that. Um, fifth point, therefore we need to drop our focus on rural and, re and rethink about our rural concerns to those that are already concerns that urban people share. Food, for example the quality and security of food, water, the issue of climate, the common identities. These are all issues that urban people are already interested in. We don't have to convince them as important issues. And they are all issues that are fundamentally, importantly, rural-based. <coughs> so we should start to think about how we might even rebrand ourselves. Should we now be calling ourselves the Canadian Rural Urban Collaboration Foundation or the Canadian Rural Urban Alliance? The alliance issue becomes extremely important. Or the Canadian Regional Revitalization Foundation in order to emphasize and in a sense market ourselves to the interests and to the concerns of urban people in order to build the kind of capacity and the opportunities that exist or can exist within rural areas. That's my five points. I welcome your questions and comments. You were, you were five minutes and 15 seconds. That's amazing. Um,
Our next speaker is Zita Cobb, so the floor is yours. Well, since you stood up, you've set a precedent. I feel I should stand up too. I don't want to lose, is this, this is a debate, isn't it? I don't want to lose a point for, for anything. Um, anyway, I am clearly, for anyone who knows me and from the, I am not an academic. I'm a business person, first and foremost. And I look, come at this set of issues as a business person. I have 15 points, and I'm going to try and do them all. I wrote them down because it's very important. I'm going to try to do them all in uh, five minutes, and I, I need to beat you, so let's see. Anyway, I think we uh, need to be very careful, and I agree with what you're saying, that we have to be very careful with the language we use. It's, we've got to stop talking about rural and urban. I don't, who knows what that means? It's a spectrum of communities that are all different sizes. I look at Toronto. It's made up of many, many, many amazing neighborhood communities. And I think um, more important is that we understand and make a distinction between a community, big or small, and a network, because they're very different things. When I say community, I mean a physical, proximate place where people live in some kind of a tangle with each other. Generally speaking, communities have shared memories and shared aspirations. And communities are the only site of care. Contrast that with a network, which is generally an online set of relationships. Networks are hugely important. They can strengthen communities. We can do trade. We can exchange ideas. And we can actually support each other. But those are networks. As the people in Halifax found out during Dorian, when the power has gone out, you can have all the networks you want. But it's the person next door that's going to help you out. So I think we, that's language. We have to be careful how we use it. When people say, I belong to an online community, I said, that's like when people said, I'm a global citizen. Nobody is a global citizen. We are all citizens of some place that's here. So with that language, now I want to talk about historical context for talking about, let's take, we're in Newfoundland and Labrador, so let's talk about that. Here we have outports. The far away, so you generally smaller, I and mean, this idea of remote is important in the conversation, I think, because remote places actually do need different things. Um, and then we have the port, St. John's. And we cannot have a gathering that involves memorial without having a quote from Dr. Harris. So I had to write it out. It's from that amazing article called The Outport Phenomena, which must have been around 2000 or so. And so I, a few sentences. He said, he wrote, the vast majority of those who annually cross the Western Ocean to fish our waters returned each autumn to their European homes. The few who, despite various disincentives, remained to become permanent settlers were quickly drawn into the mercantile net that instituted truck system and used imperial law to ensure that the fisheries were a West country enterprise whose benefits, as far as they went, promoted spin-off development in the European Metropole. In time, as substantial and prosperous industry developed in the West count Country counties of England, the fundamental ingredients of the enterprises included cheap labor, and I listed a whole bunch of other things, and ends with, and, and gave rise to a broad range of industrial activities centered around and about shipbuilding, outfitting, brokerage, insurance, financial services, and the like. So to, let's talk about small communities that are attached to nature, which Canada's rich with, whether they're 
mining places or logging places or fishing places or farming places, I think we've seen them as places to harvest. And we don't see them as places generally to invest in. So now we're going we're to talk about money. Because, and money and ownership. What Dr. Harris described here is an ownership problem. And what we have now are a whole set of ownership problems that are not all that difficult to fix. So when money leaves a community, big or small, that community is deprived of essential nutrition to survive. If there isn't a community economy, there isn't a community. I'm a huge fan of John McKnight, who's at Northwestern University, and I imagine you must know him in your work, and he talks about asset-based community development. No community, big or small, has ever built a future based on what they don't know and don't have. And, if, and I did a master class with him, and it was such a privilege to listen to him talk about how he came to this. But basically, when communities get into trouble of whatever kind, he says, along come all the helper people. And he says, I used to be one of those helper people. And decades can pass. And, and whoever was diagnosed as being poor or not educated or sick were still pretty much the same. And so he, that's what turned him to this sort of recognition that we have to work with people's assets and we have to allow people to work with their assets and we have to invest in them. And the questions of asset-based community development are simply, what do we know? Surely we must know something. What do we have? What do we love? What do we miss? And what can we do about it? Now, when we get around to the business of doing something about it, the smaller communities are generally deprived of economic capital for investment. I mean, we can just look in this country at what's gone on, just say, in chartered banks. I think decisions that used to be made inside communities got moved out of communities, and now I think it's all made by an algorithm somewhere. Um, but I can tell you from the northeast coast of Newfoundland, if you want to borrow money to do anything, good luck with that. We need to rewire the way our financial system works to put communities at the center. And the smartest banks and lenders are, are the people who are going to go back into the communities that actually the country is made up of. Gil Chin Lim was an urban planner. I'm sure there are lots of academics here who know about him. He said, we have to figure out how to create a global network of intensely local places. And to do that, I think we have to start out with let's make, a, let's make a regional network of intensely local places. And then let's make a provincial one. And then let's make a national one. And then let's make a global one. And we get to the global by coming through all of the locals. And if we don't get up every morning, all of us, and say, well, what do the locals need? We have to start with the economy. If people have an economy that supports a dignified life, they'll figure out how they organize the rest of their social lives. I think we need to be really careful not to overreach into communities. Let people figure out in their locals how they want to live. So I, I had 15 points. How many, how many minutes have I used? I don't know. I'm just listening. So, OK. <laughs> you're supposed to be the moderator, Craig. Um, anyway, well, if you're not moderating, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, but um, anyway, I'm not suggesting that we can have every single community that currently exists, say, in this province, survive into the future. What I am suggesting is we can have everyone survive 
as long as two things exist. Somebody loves that place. The only place that doesn't have a future is the one that nobody loves. And that the rest of us, whether we live in big communities or smaller communities that are adjacent, what we have to do is to figure out how can we work together to allow economic nutrition to flow there and for the initiatives that people start to give them reach. I mean, a simple thing. In this province, nobody in this province, and I mean nobody, should ever go to bed at night lying under a cover that wasn't made in this province. Like, that's ridiculous. Do you know how many quilts are made in this province? So all we have to do is to figure out, using those great networks, how do we network all the quilt makers, for example, so that we can all go to bed covered up in a quilt made by someone that's not that far away. That's a simple little economic gesture that makes a big difference to a community. So I say, follow the money, careful of the ownership. If we need to run a fishery, for example, on a little island off the northeast coast of Newfoundland that might be called Fogo Island, we don't need transnational capital. It doesn't need to be owned by a publicly traded company that's making decisions far away. A little fishing co-op that's locally owned will do the job just fine, thank you. Money stays local. If we need to drill for oil and gas off the coast of Newfoundland, bring on the transnational capital. That's when we need it. So as business people, having a little more nuance to realize, let's come up with a business solution that suits the size of the problem. I think I'm done. OK, thank you. <laughs>
and Brookings was sent away and said, until you think about what the role of the rural parts of our country is, um, we're not going to listen to your um, approach about the metropolitan areas. So I got a call um, in July saying, could I write a paper by September showing what the uh, benefits are for rural and the whole notion of rural-urban interdependence? So I, I spent my summer writing a paper basically making that case that there are things which um, urban um, produces which we use in rural, and there's lots of things that rural produce which we use uh, in, in urban areas. And, and Bill referred to some of those, and they're pretty obvious, you know, food and natural resources and energy and, and all the rest of it. But I was trying to make the case that we are interdependent, that largely when we start to categorize ourselves into shades of rural, shades of urban, we lose something about how we as a, a totality work together. So fast forward to 2016, and we suddenly start to get uh, large coverage in the media about the urban-rural divide. Um, not just uh, things are different, but actually visceral dislike of things that are rural um, as things that people that are, are backward don't know better, and that's, the way, that's why they voted the way they did. Uh, we won't go into any further detail about that. Um, but it saddened me because um, I thought we were getting to a place where we no longer talked about divides between rural and urban. We were talking about how do we figure out how to get together. So um, I was delighted at the end of last year to be asked by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation if I'd be interested in doing a project with their money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when does a foundation come to you and say, we've got some money, would you like to spend it? Uh, very rarely. Um, so. Um, I was interested in talking about uh, regional solutions to rural and urban challenges. In other words, not getting ourselves into the divide, but thinking regionally about how do we cross uh, um, uh, across all people, rural and urban. And so we have been working the, all of this year so far uh, both in terms of basic uh, uh, literature reviews, discussions with people across the country, and a whole set of field visits, which we've just completed in different parts of the United States. Um, one thing that I want to emphasize to begin with is that what we were looking at were regional organizations, regional institutions, which deliberately set out to bring rural and urban together, and which also had a, in the back of their mind, at the very least, the notion of equity. Not just geographical equity, but how do uh, low-income people, people of color, how do they participate in this, in this discussion? Um, I was a little nervous when we set out on this as to whether we'd actually find anywhere which would meet those requirements. But in fact, we find 50-odd places around the country which had some semblance of this, and we spent a lot of time in seven or eight uh, places in the United States. 
Let me just uh, talk a little bit about the headline findings. Um, first of all, and this uh, uh, gets back to a point that was just being made, is about power and control. One of the things that's very obvious, particularly in natural resources communities in the United States, and I, I really don't know enough about Canada to know whether this is true, is places like Oregon, which is a big forestry state. Half of the state is in, under forest. 60% of that land is owned by the federal government. A large chunk of others is of the land is also owned by uh, private investment corporations very often from across the, across the seas. So there's a notion there of lack of control, lack of ownership. Somebody else owns our land, cuts down our options to develop destiny for our own destiny, both as communities and as individuals. Uh, and this plays out in different parts of the country, in Appalachia, in the coal mining area. It's other people who own that place, do what they like to the community, leave it in a mess, and leave. And it's the locals have to figure out how to go forward. So this notion of power and control is really important because in many rural communities, the lack of power turns into distrust and, uh, and uh, a lack of willingness to engage with anybody uh, who might be thinking of wanting to engage with them around some positive outcomes. So you cycle back there, you start to see why many communities always seem to vote against their own best interests because they don't trust anybody else from outside. They don't have control over their own, own destinies. Other things that uh, we, uh, we saw was the power of collaboration. And we saw um, uh, structures, institutions and the like, which are, uh, some of them were community development financial institutions, some of them were regional councils of government, some of them were philanthropy, some of them are public-private partnerships. Regional organizations deliberately structured to serve both rural and urban interests together. When that happens, one, there's a piece of magic which gets back to the list of, of things of, of interdependence. Isn't it amazing that both rural and urban people um, both, have both have challenges to do with affordable housing, to do with health care and ch uh, early childhood, to do with employment and workforce development and various other things. Rural and urban people have exactly the same problems. They ju just look a little different, and they have to be de uh, dealt with, and uh, policies have to be implemented differently in those places recognizing issues to do with density. So that, uh, so that we get to that point. Then I, I could go on. I've got not just seven, 17 points. I've got six or seven pages here, but... Um, the, um, the, the one that uh, I want to um, just wrap up for the moment is um, context. What we found, and, and it's almost a truism to say that context is everything, particularly in a rural regional sense, because what we found is that the nature of collaboration in a particular region, the nature of the problems and how they define them, are all a product of history, of demography, 
of the way that policies have been formulated over the years, either in support of or hindering regional approaches and collaboration. So it's almost like every place, every region is different. So that when we try and come up with broad policies about rural-urban connections or regional policy, somehow or other we still have to get back to the point you were making, that every community is different and that the magic is starting from the bottom, working up, but looking for ways for how we could connect with each other without putting artificial barriers in front of us, calling ourselves rural or urban or, or rich or poor, we all have similar requirements. So have I had my 11 minutes? Sure. <laughs> Thank you very much, Brian. And thanks to all three panelists. Bill, if you want a rebuttal, we can, we can give you a couple minutes. It's, it may well. So I do have a couple points I want to raise. Some of these we talked about before. Some of them are pretty obvious. But uh, if you have a question, if you have a point you want to make, uh, raise your hand. There's going to be two mics. There's one over there. There's one right here. Um, so we can bring you a handheld mic, and you can ask your question. But I got a couple things I want you guys to reflect on, if you may, if you might. Um, power, ownership, control came up in various ways in all three presentations. Um, and I can remember many discussions around the surf table, around this event, about devolution and the devolution of authority down as far as we can, uh, subsidiarity and that sort of thing. Is devolution a real answer? to the ownership, control, power thing? Or wh what kind of answers should we be looking for? Maybe I'll start with Brian. Oh, Brian, please Oh, yeah. Um, am I still on Were you listening? Here? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gazing into your eyes. I just, uh, uh. That's so common. <laughs> I apologize. I think we should go to the bar now, don't you? <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, what we were talking about. Uh, uh, yes, power devolution. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 there is always a, a case for actually pushing power and responsibility down to the lowest possible level where you can actually get things done. Um, my, my issue, and I'm wearing a U.S. perspective, and you'll need to translate this in a way that we have vast numbers of local governments, 3,000-plus counties and endless number of smaller cities and what have you across the, the United States. Um, most of them, in theory, have um, a fair bit of power and responsibility, and they have taxation abilities and all the rest of it. Uh, but in rural America in particular, many no longer have the technical, uh, people, uh, fiscal capacity to serve the needs of their, uh, their, um, their communities. The problems that they face are too complex, uh, changing too much, too expensive, and they just do not have the wherewithal to think. So that we're now at a point where we need to start to, how do we build up from those to build the capacity to get things done? Now, 
there's been lots of arguments about whether you create regional governments. That's a dead duck in the US. I don't know what it looks like here. Uh, because there's always the fear of a yet another layer of government in the mix. But what I think uh, is interesting is the, the councils of government model, the uh, regional um, planning agencies and organizations, which are multiple counties coming together. They maintain their own own representatives, they retain their own identity, but they work together in a regional structure in different parts of the country, they call different things. But there is a sort of legal structure which encourages them to work together, to think together, um, plan and to determine their priorities. It's a form of soft power because they have to talk with each other, collaborate uh, in order to get things done. So that's not devolution, it's already there. We need, we're at a point where we now need to build back up again to build the strength. Yeah. Sita? We're, we're having a pretty sad debate because we, I, dis, I don't disagree with anything you said, but I'm trying really hard. But I, um, I um, two, two ways to come at Well, clearly it matters who owns what, and clearly it matters uh, who gets to make decisions. In the Canadian context, I tell you, this is the, the scariest set of numbers I've read in a really long time. Something like 60% of the Canadian economy is made up of, or GDP is made up of small and medium-sized businesses. And I don't know what percent of them are family-owned, but I don't remember what it is, but it's a very high number. But here's the scary number. 70% of the family-owned businesses are going to change hands in the next decade. Now, you know there are trillions wandering around the planet, trillions and trillions of dollars, looking for a return, looking for something to buy. Back to what I said earlier, that if you are in a smaller size community, your ability to get money to buy a business is very limited. So the chances are most of these businesses are going to be gobbled up by entities, private equity funds, whatever, where decisions are going to be made very far away from where people live. That is a super dangerous world when we separate the ownership of capital and businesses from the place. Because you can imagine where that goes. Because they're not optimizing for the well-being of the community that they're in. So that is a, like, the, of the, all the red lights, that's a really scary one. I don't know how many of you have read Rajan's book, The Third Pillar. If you haven't read it, write it down, read The Third Pillar. He um, talks about, I mean, the three pillars he talks about are government, business, and community, and he puts municipal government, and I agree with that, in the community bucket. And he, he, his thesis is, you know, it's out of balance. We have, power has gone, was for maybe too much in government, then it moved too much now clearly to business, and we gotta get power back in communities. So now let's talk about the community. Trying to have a relationship with the community is trying to like have a relationship with a friggin' hedgehog. <laughs> And, and I know this because I moved home to my community. Uh, when I moved home, there were five town councils on an island of 2,500 people. 
That, that was a lot of council meetings. Anyway, we are now one town council for a few more than 2,500 people. The next census will be a full census, not that flawed partial one or whatever they called it. So we're going to actually know. Actually, my next door neighbor said I counted them. It was all wrong. He, see, he thinks the population in Canada is 20% more because that was a flawed census based on the sample size of one. Anyway, <laughs> but my point is you, uh, com communities and municipalities, I think we need to invest more capacity, knowledge, power in the local. So now let's look at the municipality itself. Most of them are in the smaller places, volunteer people. They're trying to figure out how on earth to get the garbage picked up, let alone how do we make an economic future. So that's where I think we need to pay attention and, and your organization and organizations like yours to invest the time and effort and training to increase the capacity to bring the professional skills into the municipality. So if you're the mayor of any town, you need to grab a hold of your economic future for this town. Now, one of the things we've tried on Fogo Island, and it's, it's still nascent, and Susan uh, Cole is here, who is, who is the person who lives this every day on Fogo Island, we've created something called an Economic Development Partnership. It's a new entity, and I really think we have to grow new architecture, new, new financial architecture. And our Economic Development Partnership, is, it's incorporated, and the, the members of it are the municipality, the town of Fogo Island, us, Shorefast, which is the, one of the big, the two big employers on the island, and the Fogo Island Co-op, which is the fishery. So the three of us together sit and talk about what the heck's going on. So you're quite right. We have a housing crisis on Fogo Island, which, I mean, we're growing, but for the people that are moving, Susan said, oh, we're just about to make an offer to this amazing couple that's going to come. It's like, oh, good God, where are they going to live? This is a problem. Now, it is not helpful that... Organize, like these platform monopolies that come into our communities, whether it's Amazon who sucks money out, or whether it's you know, Airbnb platforms where people in Toronto buy houses on Fogo Island to put them on Airbnb. Taking the house out of the local pool for a couple that's moving to Fogo Island. So these kinds of, but we got to get a grip of it as a community, as an economic development partnership. So I'm proposing that an economic development partnership should emerge in communities, but at the local level. And I, I, I would be very nervous about another layer of regional. I think we can do an awful lot in, the, in each of the locals. Organize to strengthen in municipal government and strengthen the way we work together with the employers and the economic drivers in that community. Because the professional skills, like we need to be as good at, at understanding accounting and legal as the crowd in Young and Eglinton. I mean, yeah. this, this year, we know Bed Bath & Beyond introduced a Fogo Island bed skirt. I was like, what? So <laughs> how is this possible? And the mayor looks at us and, well, it's your fault that you're doing it, so you do something about it. <laughs> and so anyway, so, but I mean, and the mayor says, I don't know who to call. I don't know any trademark lawyers. I'm just a fisherman. So it's like, well, I know a lot of freaking trademark lawyers, and we've got them on speed dial. So now we, ha we trademarked our name. And... Who's going to, is it the EDP is going, thank you, Susan. So the Economic Development Partnership, now that we've trademarked it, is going to enforce it. So if you want to introduce a Fogo Island bed skirt, you're going to get a letter from the Economic Development Partnership. But I think it's that communities have to stop being fuzzy, woozy things, and they have to grow ahead and legs and act. So possession is nine-tenths of the law is what you're saying. 
In yes. for you, you just do ownership. You don't wait for it to happen. Yeah, but come on. This yeah. is our community. And I think that that kind of initiative in the deep local will add. If you'd like to address the whole power ownership control thing, that's cool. But I'd also like you to, because you raised this idea initially of the commonalities as an actual strategy. Others mention it as well. But So feel free to talk about devolution, power, control, money. Uh, but if you can segue that into the commonalities between urban and rural and how we build on that. Because it intrigues me that all three of you brought that up, that this whole rural focus, regional focus, urban focus is not where we need to go. Well, briefly, just to comment on what I, I find really interesting about this part of the discussion is that under the, the principle that I'm thinking of where we do have to enhance power, local power, we have to enhance local capacity, and mostly that comes together with increased collaboration. What, what we've got are different ways in which that can happen. Now, you look at Quebec, for example, and they have done it by legislating what was a, 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 an extra level. And what it meant was that people had to come together. They, over, like, this is a 20-year period, they ended up, of course, doing the usual squabbles at the beginning, and it gradually got to realize, oh, you know, no, we can, in order to use the resources and the opportunities here, we do have to make some kind of decisions. Over that 20 years, they got to collaborate. So that's one model whereby people are building the trust that's necessary to do the collaborations, and there was money put to it, and so on. And Did so you on. say 20 years? 20, oh, 20, 25 20 years. years. Yeah, they were given right. time. Yeah, the, the rural PACs were, were over it. Multiple uh, governments. It was, it's an amazing story. <laughs> Nobody in Canada outside of Quebec knows about it. But it, it was a phenomenal. It is a phenomenal thing. Now, they've cut the money, but those entities still operate. So they've created a monster <laughs> you know, from, a, from a, a, a provincial point of view because they've learned how to work together and they've developed some of that capacity. Now that's one model, but you're also suggesting a different model but on the basis on which communities come together and people come together and collaborate. But I think that's the, in my mind, th those whatever, however you do that, those kinds of things are very positive because they build local capacity. People get to talk to one another. They build the, the, the trust that's necessary to actually take action on, on whatever it is. So those stories, I think, are really useful. And, and they, they fit. One of the little sort of ways in which we say is, yes, every community is different. So you have to accommodate that. Well, every region is different. So you have to accommodate that as well. And so you, you do have an, a plethora of ways in which that can happen. Even in Canada, we see that. The, um, uh, for those of you who will be around uh, on Saturday, this is a little plug for our session from the, the uh, Canadian Development Group where we have looked across different places in Canada and asked the question about regional development. How does it take place? What actually happens? 
where is it happening, and so on. So that actually would be a, a follow-up to this kind of discussion that we're raising here. Now, the, you then ended up... <laughs> the commonalities. The commonalities, okay. Well, to me, um, we can identify commonalities because we know of them, but we also, what's nice about that is we have some wonderful examples of the ways in which those commonalities have been acted upon. Um, you know, one of the, the best examples in my mind is the relationship between New York City and the Catskills, you know. They knew their, wa their water's coming from the Catskills. If that water <laughs> runs into trouble, they're in huge trouble. So they ended up going to the Catskill communities and saying, you protect our water, we'll give you some money so your farmers don't have to, you know, farm right up to the edge of the creek uh, so that you're actually making sure that our water supply is safe. That's a huge one because there's big money involved and there's a lot of communities involved. We find a number of similar kinds of examples in Canada. The, the um, uh, North Al Alberta hub was a situation where the city of Edmonton collaborated with a whole bunch of communities around it because uh, they realized that a little theater in Rosebud or uh, uh, little activities that were taking place in other parts of the, the smaller communities contributed to the Edmonton economy. And, and so that they were willing to share some of their capacity in terms of the planners and so on and so forth in order to help those communities both develop their, their own vision and, and capacity, but also they provided the time and the energy that's necessary for, say, a planner to go in and say, all right, well, what's the best strategy? So we have a number of examples of this. In, in Quebec, again, you find this group, the Fierté Agricole, which is a, a group of, of um, uh, uh, LGBTQ people in rural and urban who have come together because they share similar kinds of issues in living in their communities and self-consciously say, we want both in this, in this. Those kinds of initiatives already are just responding to, to the, the issues that are there. A network is not a community. But, but, but it can connect but, communities. But it's a good use of a network. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's yeah. it. It works. To that's make right. communities stronger. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, while, and uh, while you're on the topic of examples, you, we must talk about tourism because whether you're looking at Canada as a country or Newfoundland and Labrador, for the most part, our tourism assets are in smaller places. They're close to nature. The excess points are in the bigger places where the airports are. This is a natural place for us to work together. It is in the interest of St. John's Airport, and I know they're going to do it. We're all going to do it together, and I hope that minister's still here. We're going to get a flight from New York to St. John's if, it, if it's the end of all of us. Now, that is something that's really good for St. John's and really good for every other community in this province as long as we can figure out how to get from St. John's to other places in the province. That's an, it's always an end if you look a little deeper down than the surface. On the topic of media, that's the other thing I wanted to ask about is several of you mentioned the discourse. Brian, you mentioned in the US there was this visceral sort of one against the other thing that emerged in the media. I don't think it's that nasty here yet. 
necessarily. But it's, my perspective, I think you guys have said the same thing, is that uh, the general discourse in the media is that it's rural versus urban, that what's, it's a zero-sum game. And I wonder, uh, have, we, have we missed that? Have we, is it too late to, to fix that, to pull that back, or to change the narrative, given the speed with which humans consume media at this particular time in history? What can we do? Bill, we'll start. Uh, I, I don't agree it's urban versus rural. It's mostly misrepresentation of rural. And uh, rural's there, you know, you... But that's how it's I get, perceived. I get these, these calls and sort of do my little thing about it and so on. And most of the people are, are urban people and they're, you know, they have their deadlines and they're, they have a particular angle. And, and a lot of the conversation is sort of like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, as I'm, as I'm sort of feeding the, the stuff. So their, their vision is a, a bit of a problem because they're the... They're the gatekeepers for, for the, the message. And like I say, they, there's, a, there's a sense of, oh, rural's a disaster. That, that's the message. But that's not a rural versus urban. That's just rural's a basket case. Um, and and the, the idea that there may be alternative views to that comes as news to the, <laughs> to the reporters. Okay? So to me, it's more they, they, they're just ignorant about about what the conditions are in rural. And that, that's what gets passed on. That's the kind of narrative that we hear. Um, I, yeah, I, in terms of what to do about it, I don't know. I do my little bit in terms of every time I get the call. Um, I'm doing a bit of an education thing there. But it, in, in Canada, it's not, the, it's not that big conflict stuff. You I know, think. but I mean, who, who's holding the pen, whether it's the Global yep. Mail writing another article about uh, what's the place in Labrador they like to write about black, 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 tickle. Yeah, black, black tickle. Thank yeah. you. Uh, oh, you know, it's uh, the rural stuff that's in the so-called national newspaper um, is, is not not the happy stuff. And, you know, and if I have to read one more editorial in the telegram about the cost of the Fogo Island ferry without mentioning what the GDP of Fogo Island is, that, I mean, it's that kind, I agree with you, it's, but the, that it's misinformation that's going out, but the people that are controlling the pen live in the city more likely than they live in Black Duck or what Black, what's it called? Black Brook. Tickle, black tickle. They're not living in black tickle. There'll be a different article. So I think it's either writing. They're writing exactly. So I think that that's the the really dangerous thing. I, if you read read the last walrus, I mean this walrus, the October walrus. There was an article about is Canada coming apart or something or other, and uh, it's a fantastic article. Basically, it says you know it, she basically asserts it's not that we have fewer and fewer things in common. It's that the story we're buying into that's being told by people who control the pen is that we're polarized. That that's, it's just, it's just move past that. I, I think we just have to deal with the, with the realities that we're... Right. Brian, we, we aren't where you are right now in terms of the public discourse. It's not as nasty here yet. Um, I don't see any... Cross why the did the Canadian cross the road? What, does anyone know why the Canadian crossed the road? Canadian crossed the road to get to the middle. <laughs> and that's what I love about being Canadian. 
But there's nothing to say we can't end up there. Um, I think that should be the last word. <laughs> I'm going to close the show here. You just listened to most of the opening panel of the 2019 Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation Conference and North Atlantic Forum we hosted here at the Signal Hill campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland. The moderator for the panel was the Executive Director of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, Mr. Craig Pollitt, and the panelists were Dr. William Reiner, Ms. Zita Cobb, and Mr. Brian Dobson. I am Boyan Fierst, and I produce Rural Roots at the Hare Center at Memorial University of Newfoundland in partnership with Rural Policy Learning Commons and Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation. You can find us online at www.ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's Rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. You can also find us wherever you listen to podcasts and on National Campus and Community Radio Station Exchange. Talk to you soon.